We come now to the Word of God, read and preached. God speaks to us this evening from 1 Samuel chapter 8, pages 230 and 231 in the Bibles that are in the pews. And I invite you to hear the Word of God. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Let's draw near to God in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would hear us and that you would equip us with ears to hear that we might enter in to understand this difficult text, a heart-examining text that enables us clearly to see ourselves and better to appreciate how very much we need the rule of Jesus. But our hearts by nature are so blocked up, blockaded against you, that we could not, would not, Listen, if you would leave us to ourselves. And so we ask, 
come and meet with us this evening, O God. Disclose yourself in glory, in healing grace, in all of your help. Rescue us from ourselves, from our self-rule, from our bondage to all the idols that are in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled this sermon, and I think it's a helpful thesis to begin the sermon with the simple statement that we need a king. We need a king. That's really one of the central statements and ideas of the book of Judges. We've considered that before. Judges 21-25 concludes the book in this way. It's sort of the punchline to the whole book. In those days, and these are still the days, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you were with us when we last considered 1 Samuel 7, it seems Israel's made a little bit of progress. There has been some lamenting. There has been some seeking after God. Idols have been put away. The fragmented nation they were before, maybe is being bound together. Samuel appears to be leading But we remember that this is the same people, adulterous, backsliding people, who, in the book of Judges, continually spiraled down in their unbelief. Each time the Lord raised up judges to deliver them. And finally, when they would turn away again and be brought low enough, they would ask, and God continually raised up a judge. Well, Samuel is the last and the greatest of the judges. The word of God has come to him. Eli's line has been cut off. And there has been a real mourning, an apparent revival. And if we were to look back into 1 Samuel 7, we would notice at the conclusion of that chapter that there is even a regular circuit of judging for Samuel, perhaps the true origin, at least the analogous origin of the circuit court system of English common law and American law. But again, Israel's heart has not changed. It really hasn't. And the first exhibit, exhibit A, is Samuel's own sons. Doesn't this feel like, to quote someone else, doesn't this feel like deja vu all over again? Here we have Samuel's sons corrupt and walking away from the Lord, just like the sons of Eli. And they, by taking bribes, disqualify themselves as judges. Jethro set the model for judges in Exodus 18.21. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people. Well, these men are over the people, but they don't hate bribes. They love bribes. They're looking for them. God's rulers were to be incorruptible men, and these are not those men. These are clearly not the men that God has chosen to rule. And so we're left with this really deep, troubling question. Here's Samuel Old. Again, does it sound familiar? It sounds very familiar. What is going to happen to the nation? What about national stability, if nothing else? What about this great revival that we read about in 1 Samuel 7? Trouble. You can understand why there would be real concern. Now, what's the solution? The elders. And you notice it is the elders. This is significant. The elders of the people who would ordinarily be part of making judgments in the city gate come to Samuel and they request a king. 
Now, this is a text that has often been misunderstood, and I hope we can shed some light on it this evening to you, whether or not they were right to ask. But I want you to take it at least initially this idea that for Samuel has been leading us, Judges has been leading us up to this point, to this very moment, where at last there would be a recognition. We need a king, and that's a good thing. The request in and of itself is not a bad request. Think of what Hannah's saying. Samuel 2.10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. There's going to be a king. We're meant to have a king. We need a king. And even in the prophecy of Eli's wicked sons going to their death, he speaks of the ruler that he will anoint and set up. Israel is absolutely correct. They need a king. In fact, let's broaden this out. It's not just Israel that needs a king. We need a king. This is one of the fundamental needs of every human being, of every nation and person under heaven. Who will be king? What sort of king do we need? And that will be the burden of what we consider this evening. Well, the Lord has a king, and he desires to rule his people by that king. If you have your Bible in front of you, would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17? And there read the classic text of God's determination to raise up a king. Deuteronomy 17, and I'll begin reading in verse 14, page 161 in your Bibles in the pews. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now, do you notice what the Lord has said here? He has not said, kings, bad, stop, no. God has actually declared long in advance, kings, good, necessary. Ah, but which one? And by the way, notice here, say what you like about republics and democracy, God's form of government is ultimately a monarchy, not a tyrannical kingship, like you read about in history books, but a monarchy because he is himself a king. Well, what kind of king does he desire? Just considering Deuteronomy 17 for a moment here. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus, isn't it? Really a glorious picture of God's chosen king who will come, who will rule us, who now sits upon heaven's throne with all power and authority. What is his identity? He is a chosen man. The one whom the Lord your God will choose. He is a sympathetic man. 
because he is from among his brothers. And when Deuteronomy says, when you're asking for a king like the nations, this is a relatable king. The nations can understand what sort of a person he is. They can recognize his sympathy. They can understand him. That's his identity. Notice, more heavily emphasized even, his actions. He is to have a unique authority, unlike the kings of the earth. Little, very little is said about what he's actually going to do. We can infer it from the surrounding passage, which talks about priests and judges. But he's a very limited man in what it says about him here. What kind of limitations? First of all, he is a selfless man. And as it says in the ESV, he shall not acquire for himself. Do you notice how many times that came out in the text? Or in the original, he shall not multiply for himself. He is not to add to himself three specific things. Horses. Why? Because horses are part of your military strategy and power. And he is not to rely on them or on Egypt or any other ally for help. No. His help is in the name of the Lord. And so the way of fleshly reliance is closed to the king. He is, a second thing, not to acquire many wives, to take them to himself. Because too many wives, maybe even for some of us, one, too many wives are a threat to a focused and a faithful heart. He is, likewise, thirdly, not to acquire for himself too much silver and gold. Now, did you catch that? The common theme here is what? He is not to get for himself. The thing that must be avoided, one of his greatest actions is simply to avoid doing things for himself. He is not to be interested in self-preservation, strength, or pleasure. He is not a man who lives for himself. He lives for his people. That's God's king. Second act what he is to do. That was what he's not to do. What is he to do? He's to be a Bible man, if we could put it this way. He's to write out the word of God. He's to meditate on it. He's to keep it. He's to judge by it. What's he to do as he's sitting there on the throne? Write a complete and approved copy of the law of God. Now, just think how long that would take you and how difficult it would be, especially if writing wasn't something that you were perhaps even regularly in those days taught in school. He has to become the preeminent keeper of the law. He has to know it. He has to adhere to it. He must be the one who does it out of all the rest of the nations. Will he do things that a judge does? Of course he's going to do those things. But that isn't what the text says. Who does he judge first? Himself. This is God's intention for his people. A king of sympathy, without pride, without self-centeredness, who is not seeking to get for himself, who lives according to the purity and the beauty of the word of God. That's the kind of king he has to be, not focused on his own agenda, his own policies, his own mandates. A man of the word in whose mouth is the word as it says in Joshua 1.8, the word of the Lord is to be constantly in his mouth. Look through Israel's history. You will not find one. You will not find one. David comes close, a few others perhaps, in a sort of analogous way. Not one king can do this. There is a king, though, that does. 
the great king of Israel, the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, in his coming, is God's king. Do you see how beautiful this is? God's intention, not just to rule Israel nationally, but to rule you by his son, unselfish, sympathetic, really interested in your well-being by the word of God. Well, in contrast, we have to consider man's king. Who and what does he look like? And we see this in the request. What do they want? They want a king. And it seems at first that that sounds like, isn't this, isn't this what God asked, wanted them to get? Isn't this what he intends for them? They're asking for a king. And yet you can tell, as we read in the text, something is obviously wrong with this situation. Even we find Samuel troubled. What is wrong? Well, the diagnosis of that is going to probably take us the rest of our time considering this passage. And let's consider, first of all, who this king is in this way. They want a king who's going to solve their problems. Not all bad, right? We need our problems solved, and isn't that what King Jesus is going to come and do? They want, let me repeat, they want a king to solve their problems. Who's missing there? God is. This isn't a request for God's king. It is simply a request for a king. Now, what do we do? What's the good old American way? If there are problems in society, blame the government, right? That's exactly what's happening here. By implication, God, who says he is really ruling them, is the one at fault. Things aren't going the way they're supposed to do. And what do you do when the government fails? You blame the government. You look for another. You install another government. God's government has to go. We're going to find a king for this. And so Israel looks for a political solution to what they see as only a political problem when this is really a problem with their heart, a problem of deep spiritual power and bondage. Just think back to chapter 7 for a moment here. How quickly is it Israel has forgotten? How quickly do we forget that the only way to really deal with our problems, the only real way to deal with our problems, inside and out, humble ourselves, go back to the scriptures, tear down our idols, lament our sins, and cry out to God for help. And when Israel did that, what happened? Massive victory. Ebenezer. God has helped us up to this point. But it appears the leaders, as one commentator puts it, are implying God has been less than successful. And somehow a king might do a better job. Like Israel, we grow dissatisfied with a rule that we can't see that doesn't make sense always to our fleshly understanding. What do we do? We blame the government and we embark on a never-ending quest for a better one. And what do we end up doing? Just change the nameplate all the time. But the inside is always the same. Nothing ever changes. Well, what sort of government does our sinful nature want? As we see it here displayed in the desires of the elders of Israel. They want a man to judge. This is not entirely unreasonable. They want a king who will be a formal and permanent judge. You can see this in verse 19 and 20. 
There's no reference here of the law of God. Notice that. They want a king who will defend them and be victorious. They want to beat the Philistines once and for all, and others too while they're at it. But pause again. Pause again. Do you see the problem here? The Lord is already doing this. God is actually doing this. And the preceding narrative has clearly demonstrated they don't need a king. God leads them into battle. God judges his people. And he does it whenever they turn from their idols and seek him with all their heart. What kind of a king? Let's go further. A king like the nations. Now, I know that initially when we hear that, that sounds pretty bad, right? A king like the nations. That's exactly, though, what it says in Deuteronomy. It's the same wording. So the wording is fine. Except that we have a problem, again, with the heart. And here's the heart problem. As legitimate as this seems, what they want is not a king who can be understood and rule over the nations. They want a king who will make them like the nations. Well, what were the nations' kings like? Samuel tells us, doesn't he? He talks about all these things that... uh, under an American democratic republic, really sound repugnant to us. He's going to take our sons and daughters. He's going to take our land. He's going to take our grain. He's going to take our income. He's going to take and take. Well, think about what Israel considers this to be. Even as Samuel is saying this, this is hard for us to appreciate, but even as Samuel is warning, what Israel is hearing is a major step forward. Culturally, technologically, militarily, governmentally, Israel doesn't have these things. They don't have this kind of organized system. The nations around them, though we may quickly dismiss them, those Canaanites that were under the ban of God and had to be destroyed, don't dismiss them quite so quickly. They were very advanced in comparison with the Israelites. You want to talk about art culture? Don't go to Israel. You want to talk about language? Well, Those other cultures had a lot of things going for them. Very powerful, very technologically impressive for their time. This sounds pretty good. This is going to be a major leap for the nation of Israel. But notice once again, their interest is not a man who fears the Lord and loves his law. They want to be like the nations. They don't just want a king, which the other nations have. They want a king who will turn them into the nations, which then prompts us to ask the question, what were they already? They were holy to the Lord. Leviticus 20 tells us, I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, the land of these who I'm driving out before you, whom I detest. I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who separated you from the peoples. You are mine. And as such, Deuteronomy 14.2 tells us, they are precious. You are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So get what they are saying. Maybe they don't realize the full implications, and I doubt that we usually do when we say we want to rule ourselves. They are really saying, Mesopotage, birthright. Pottage sounds pretty good to me. I'll take the soup, thanks. This is the roaring of the flesh. 
demanding to be fed. Well, the Lord warns about this. And clearly, as one commentator says, the model of kingship that the Lord wants for Israel cannot be what Samuel has here described. And so here we have the denunciation. Did you notice in Deuteronomy 17, he's not to, put it in language similar to the ESV, he's not to take, take, take. Well, guess what he does here? Here is Israel wanting a king who's going to give, give, give. They're like the leech in the Proverbs. But what's he going to do? He's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to bleed them dry. Of sons and daughters, fields, vineyards, olive trees, crops, servants, flocks, and you're going to be his slaves. All so that he can get for himself. What a terrible, wicked, evil rule. Contrast this for just a moment with the Lord of love who says, come to me, you give me your burdens, and I will give you my rest. But this is the kind of kingship that we would naturally choose for ourselves because we think this kind of king is going to give us what we want. Do you see, just take a look through the window for just a moment, do you see how really evil it is to be left to your own desires? Your own desires, ruling you and me, are going to consume and destroy us. In contrast to Jesus, who gives up his life, sacrifices himself, that we may freely, we may freely, Psalm 110 says, willingly, gladly offer ourselves in response, in love, for the love with which we have been loved, offer ourselves in living sacrifice to him. This is not a king. Jesus is not a king who is going to give the flesh what he wants, but he's going to kill the strength and the power of the flesh and give us new and better desires. But what does the flesh say? Let's change the polity. Let's change the system of government. Don't like this leader? Let's try a different one. Don't like this technique? Let's try another. We're going to solve our issues. My friends... We have to die to that lie. The only real new rule there is, is a king who freely gives himself for you. And he's not going to rule by distant policies or by votes, but by fellowship with him and worship and adoration of him who loves us and gave himself for us. That's Israel's desire. That's what they want. They're not going to turn back, as we'll see. But what sort of ruler would we be? This is a question I think we ought to ask ourselves. If you ruled the world, it's kind of a fun exercise, isn't it? If I ruled the world, what would I do? If you had practically unlimited power, well, it probably starts like this. I'd overturn abortion, right? Good, good. I'd undo the sexual and racial perversion in the body politic. I'd get rid of corruption in the political process. Good. Good things. Very good things. And if you were a politician and you had those talking points, people would vote for you. There's a problem. That's not the end of your desires. Your desires, if you had unlimited power to rule the world and be king of all things, would not end with the interests of other people. The reality is that probably most of the time we desire those good things because we're so selfish and they serve our interests. 
We ought to pause and consider before we think we could rule the world. Our ways of getting righteousness are often full of wickedness. Isn't this what James says? It's a very startling thing. The wrath of man. Oh, there are things to be angry about. Just look around. Oh, we should be angry people. The wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Our desires for ourselves, our interests, our pleasures, our comforts, our security for ourselves end up taking over everything and destroying it all. It's an oppressive system, not just for other people, but for our own hearts. And guess what we end up doing? Great ambitions to serve the Lord, but we end up doing whatever is right in our own eyes. You are not a fit king, and neither am I. Please don't make me one. You wonder sometimes, how is it that a good man who's elected to office, be it politician, pastor, boss, whatever it is, how does he become a bad man? You put a good man into a a position where things can really happen, and so often he ends up just contributing. How is that? Because our, our inward rule of desire is so very deeply messed up. We can't even perceive what's right and what's good in the end because we are by nature corrupt. And so see with this desire, I'm going to fix things. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to set you right. I can do it better than the other people who are trying right now. See what that really is. Take off the mask. It's not serving Jesus. It's serving yourself. And God warns us, you do this, you're just exchanging one bondage for another. One oppressive regime for one that may even be worse. Your policies, your success, whatever you think your moral standards are. And that ruler is going to bring you so low, just as the Philistines and the Midianites and all the other enemies of Israel did in Judges. They're going to bring you so low that in the end, you're going to be crying. That's the truth about ourselves, friends. This is not some sort of a text where we say, oh, those rotten Israelites, how come they got it wrong again? We have been leading up to this point because God intends to tell us we need a king, and it can't be you. And it can't be me. By nature, man rejects the Lord, rejects his king. And this is what the Lord says. They have rejected me. It's a sort of repeat of the golden calf incident. We don't know about what happened to this Moses. Make gods for us to go before us. Because Israel, because you, because I, left to ourselves, we crave leadership and we visualize that there's this sort of leadership vacuum. Okay, we, you know, we, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe he's ruling all things. But, you know, clearly things aren't going right. Um, I'm not a deist, but... Surely God has a a good plan, a really good plan to help me to rule you and try to rule myself. It's nothing but an attempted coup. Nature abhors a vacuum, physics tells us, and human nature absorbs, uh, abhors what we consider a leadership vacuum. And this is an ongoing trouble of the human heart, imagining, falsely believing that there is a vacancy on heaven's throne, and things are not going according to plan. 
And so, because we envision that, what do we do? What do we do? You know, it's really interesting that throughout Scripture, leaders, God appoints. They never step up and say, Mimi, Mimi, right over here. You know, I'm the guy, although Saul kind of does. When you get to him, he's the tallest, right? Everybody notices him. What do we do by nature when we don't see the Lord, don't rest in him? What do we do? We, let's face it. We step up. We take charge. If we're not totally off, just discouraged, well, we're going to step up. We're going to find a way to rule. We're going to set the agenda. We're going to make sure things happen. Isn't this our nature? We're going to organize. We're going to set things straight. We're going to make the plan. We're going to get things in order. That impulse, not directed to the glory and under the authority of Jesus, not ruled by the word, not unselfishly directed, not sympathetic, is utterly contrary to the rule of Jesus in our daily life. And he's going to let you know it, too. He's not going to let you rule. Think about all the ways that other people disappoint you, and you and I, we try to fix it, right? I'm going to get in there. I'm going to solve this problem. Car won't start. Maybe I'll kick it. Dog keeps barking. I'll kick it, too. What happens with my children? (laughs) Now, I I don't want to misunderstand things here. This is not a call for us to let go and let God, but to take responsible action under the reigning king. We have a king. Well, even after this warning, God's people refuse to heed correction. It's really deeply troubling. After a warning like this one, you would think people would turn around. They want a man to be king, and they want to elevate him to rule in the place of God. And it is astonishing. Just read a little later in your Bible, read into the New Testament, and we find that God gives the king, and guess what? Israel doesn't want a king anymore, and they say, not him, we have no king but Caesar. Thanks very much. We don't want this king. Israel here demands a king, and they're going to get him, all right. They're going to get demonic Saul, and they're going to trade the true king for Barabbas. And that is the pattern so deeply ingrained in our nature that when we come up to the Lord's trial and we find them, God's people, rejecting him in place of an insurrectionist, a fighter against the regime, notice that, that we're really hearing the story that's been told all along. It's just First Samuel 8 told all over again. When God wants to discipline his children, he gives us what we ask for. He gives us self-rule. But here's the great and glorious news of the gospel. He is yet determined to rule us in grace, and though he may, for a time, leave us to our misery and judge us for our unbelief, he is still ruling. Do you notice that nowhere in here has God said, fine, I'm out of here. I'll step down. You don't like me? I'm done with you people. If it were you and me, you want, you want self-rule? You want to fix things? Isn't that what you and I would do? I'm done with these people. What's, to use quote R.C. Sproul, what's wrong with you people? Right? What's wrong with us is we need the true king. And as long as we think that success and sanctification are going to happen by our self-rule and not by Jesus, they will never happen. This is how Jesus rules us. He insists that we find 
no other success, no other comfort, no other security, no other blessing apart from his gracious rule. And he will sometimes, with his people, bring us to the point where we are just left crying until at last we can say with Calvin, promptly and sincerely, Lord, I offer my heart to you. This is how Jesus is determined to captivate us, to show us the husks that we naturally want to feed on so that we can see what he has given us himself. So that we can embrace the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. God is going to install his king. He is the one who will reign forever. Christ has come into the world. Christmas has come. Easter has passed. Jesus has ascended. He reigns. So if I could summarize what you and I ought to do here, I think this is a simple way to put it. Okay, we need a king. That's clear. But at least I hope it's clear to you. What are you to do? Less voting, more weeping. Less telling myself and you, this is the way you need to fix things. And more humbling ourselves before our God and crying out that he would meet with us. That is how he is pleased to rule, not in our self-reliance, but in continual pleading and experiencing of his grace. So you can think about that. What are you voting for? What are you so anxious about? i got to win this one. got to win this election, whatever it is, in your heart or in your family or in, the, in society, at work, wherever it is. got to win this one. No, die to that. This is a lesson I am slowly learning in the very hard ways of God. Less voting, more weeping, and more delighting in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we bless and adore you. Jesus Christ reigns, and he is gracious, and he is giving, unselfish, sympathetic, entirely in himself and in his rule, all that we need. We bless and adore you, that we do not need to seek out a better government. But we need, O Lord, faith to rest in a government that is to sight so often completely opaque. Help us, our God, not to lean on our own understanding, but continually in all of our ways to acknowledge the grace that has come down to us and appeared for us in Jesus Christ. And because of that, by that, be trained. Be trained by such love and grace to walk in faith, humble dependence for your glory and your honor. We pray that you would hear us and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's Supper. He rules us by grace and gives himself to us. We read again those beautiful, wonderful words of institution of the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writing says, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What an astonishing thing that there would be a king who would come and rule us by dying, by giving himself to us. When we who are so self-centered, around whom the whole gravitational force of the universe seems sometimes to revolve, sucking in everything to us, we who would even be lords of the earth and of God himself are recipients of a grace in Christ, a death in Christ that puts that sinful desire to death. Friends, this is not the table of this particular church. It's the table of Jesus who reigns. And this is the table of a Jesus who intends and invites you to communion, to real fellowship, to really know him, to really experience his rule, to really find the loving, tender compassion of a gracious father for you here, who would give his own son for you, for you, for me. And here we see our sins exposed, but here we see great love manifest. A king who is the shepherd of love. And because Jesus invites you to that, Jesus also sets the parameters. He rules, even right here at this table, rendering a kind of judgment, a judgment that may show some of us our hearts have yet to submit, to really bow inwardly, truthfully, to such a king. But in gracious judgment, also showing that we who come by faith are really received, not for anything that we do, not even for any love that we render to God, but simply for Christ's sake, received and welcomed to him and all that he has. And so as we come, we have good scriptural mandates that we ought to come as those who are baptized members of Christ's body, professing our faith in a church like this one where the gospel is preached, acknowledging humbly in ourselves our sin and misery and our utter need for Christ alone to save us from all our selfishness. And with that coming, not only professing and openly so, but continuing privately to walk with God under a rule that sees beyond the borders of a church building and into our private homes, into our private computer monitors, right into our hearts. Friend, if that's you, recognizing your sin, recognizing your wretchedness, recognizing how terrible a thing it is to rule yourself, if you're coming and trusting in Jesus and obeying him because of that faith that he gives you, then come and welcome. And if that's not you, can you see how wretched it is, how awful, and really how wicked it is to seek after the kind of self-rule that would bring everything into submission to you. It will all come down to weeping. Dear friend, if that's you, plead with such a gracious God that he would come and make known his loving rule to you, that you might from the heart obey those commands of Christ, be baptized, trust in Christ, freely confess his name and walk with him. 
This is then a table where Christ examines you. No, you cannot physically see him present, although these things represent his presence, don't they? No, you cannot see him, but he walks among us, discerning every thought, every motive, every heart by his word, declaring what we are and declaring himself fit, right to rule here and always in our hearts. Let's draw near to God in prayer. We thank you, O oh dear Jesus, that you would come to us who have no claim to righteousness, whose rule fails every time, and so often are filled with rank and obvious selfishness, who think so highly of ourselves and put others down, who are so quick to correct and find fault with others and not to even see the log in our own eye. Oh, Lord, we, we know we don't deserve to come to a table like this one, but we praise you that Jesus Christ has come to rule and by his rule not only to correct but in love to win and to transform the lives of such sinners as we are. And so we pray that even in receiving the sacrament of Christ's body and blood broken and poured out for us, we would hear by your grace witness what he has done who he is presently in his reign, and afresh commit ourselves to leave the ways of our sinful desires and to walk with you in that holiness that is the gift and the outworking of your gift in us through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.